Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NELA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the board of directors of NELA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrett. And I'm Ahmed Bindra. Happy New Year. This is, I think, our first recording after the first of the year, right? Yeah, I think that's right. All right. Yeah. Ahmed always wears really interesting garb. I won't be narcissistic as to think that it's about myself, that he's trying to do it. But anyway, he's wearing a... I I can't say it. You can't say it, yeah. ...podcast, but... It has Putin's name and the first word starts with an F. That's his shirt. And that's what I'm looking at. And I got my Ukraine hat on too. Hey, Max. So I was in Boston Christmas Day to watch a basketball game and they were selling this shirt on the street and I had to buy it. I I will say what I wear during the week and what I wear on the weekends is very different. In my head, Amit Amit would be like wearing like leather and chains and like has a mohawk (laughs) in his free time and then comes into the office and like switches out of his, it's like a Superman garb. You just go through the turnstile and you're a different person when you get to the office. Yeah, it's like a tie Monday through Friday, even if the office is empty. And then on the weekends, it's usually some sort of sports shirt. But today we got related. I mean, I got it at a basketball game, but... This is why it's good when we have guests, because then Amit and I don't waste time and riff yeah. like this. That <laughs> no one but us wants to hear. Anyway, we're doing a non-compete episode today. I'm excited. Yeah, let's do it. So just to back up, we're today going to talk about a new proposed rule coming out of our federal government from the from the FTC. This is going to have to do with non-competes. And I think it's going to build a little bit off of an episode that we did a year, year and a half that also touched on an FCC rule or initiative and non-competes. So as as the one who does not do non-competes on this episode, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass it off to Ahmed here. Ahmed, what are we looking at? Yeah, it's that's a actually a very good question of what are we actually looking at. So for some context, I'm gonna go, kind of go to the middle, then go to the beginning, and then get us to where we're at now. So to, the middle point is what Max you just alluded to about a year, year and a half ago. Biden had asked the FTC to look into non-competes. And the Biden administration generally has been pretty good about trying to crack down on anti-competition. So their DOJ has been more aggressive. And in fact, as they announced this rule, I think it was Thursday, maybe early January, right after the new year on the fourth, they also announced that they were suing three companies for using harmful or bad non-compete agreements too. So this is kind of the trend of the Biden administration. And what I meant by going backwards, a lot of this started, I think, with the Obama administration. I thought they were really good in terms of doing more with non-compete agreements, putting it out there from a public space, doing more studies and research. And I think it led to a lot of good signaling to the states. And so from 2012 through 2023, we've seen a lot of laws passed at the state level in the context of non-compete agreements, including what Illinois passed, which became effective last January, the Freedom to Work Act. And initially, a lot of these laws were targeted at low-wage workers, because it kind of makes sense. Like, if someone's making minimum wage, they shouldn't have a non-compete agreement. And now they're targeting, and this rule specifically is much broader, they target kind of all agreements. So what this rule specifically says is that it would ban non-compete clauses both for low-wage workers, for all workers, really. And it would be for existing non-competes, but also non-competes in the future. So it's a pretty broad scope. And, And I mean that 
very literally, the way they define non-compete clause in this rule is it's a contract term between an employer and a worker that prevents a worker from seeking or accepting employment with a person or operating a business after the conclusion of the worker's employment with the employer. So it covers a whole host of stuff. But that's a long way of saying, I'm trying to answer Max's initial question is what just happened, which is we have a proposal. We don't actually have a rule, a legislation or anything like that. It's a proposal. And for the next 60 days, the public can submit their comments and thoughts about the proposal. And then the FTC will do something. And I suspect a lot of people will be, will be submitting their thoughts to the FTC. Why ever do you say that, Amit? It's not like this would be controversial. So this is matter number P201200 put forth by the by the FTC about, I guess, four or five days ago now. So this is interesting. And I think when you think about this in the context, too, of the mandatory arbitration bill that was signed into law by President Biden and a lot of the NLRB's work, I realize some might disagree, but I think at least on on balance and, and on its face, the administration's been pretty good about worker freedom and sort of generalized worker protections. I know the OSHA rules were tightened up quite a bit that they have taken a much more aggressive stance on enforcement as well. And I know because they've talked to Neela, the EEOC is trying to do listening sessions and figure out what they can do and what employment lawyers are seeing on the ground that the government needs to take action. And so I think that's all encouraging. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I, I really do think it's been a good spillover from the Obama administration, a lot of these same issues. And a large degree, like it, ultimately, I'm not sure it matters if the FTC, I mean, obviously it matters in the sense of if the FTC bans non-compete, that's a big deal. But even if they don't, I think the conversation at the state and local levels is going to continue and the signaling definitely matters or seems to matter for sure. Can I backtrack briefly yep. just to talk more hypotheticals? We're all plaintiff's lawyers, at least the, the two of us primarily and our bar. Are there, as a primarily plaintiff's lawyer, you still do non-compete work, I think, on both sides. Do you ever, do you think, do you think there's a possibility that a more pared back version of this might make more sense? Like there are certain occasions when they should exist. I don't know. For sure. I think... I think ultimately if the FTC, and this is just me speculating, obviously I don't have any inroads to the Biden administration, but why though? I know I should, they should have been calling me on this one, but no, I think in reality, if the FTC is going to pass something, it's probably not going to be this aggressive. And I mean that in a couple of different ways. One, you'd have to tighten up the definition of a non-compete clause because the way it's drafted right now, it could implicate non-solicitation clauses and confidentiality agreements. So the purpose of a non-solicit is to prevent someone from poaching customers or employees if they go to a new spot. I know a lot of folks listening right now are probably also saying sometimes non-solicits are written as a non-compete. That's true. But in essence, if you draft it correctly, that's what it's supposed to do. And a confidentiality agreement, and it's, in its essence, it's just supposed to say, don't steal our stuff. So I think this would probably have to be scaled back in, the, in that way. And this is an interesting component of it, too, of kind of what we're talking about. Like some folks may, like we would expect the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to submit opposition to this new legislation. At the same time, the executives at the top level probably don't want non-competes for themselves. So it's an area where there's always bipartisan support because you have companies who need to hire employees but then also want to protect their information. So it does lead room for compromise. And that's essentially what happened with the Illinois bill and what's happening with a lot of bills across the country is the laws are banning non-compete agreements for people below a certain wage threshold. So that way they're leaving them in place for higher wage earners who may have more sensitive information. You wonder too, I don't know, like I always think the example that always comes to mind for me is the scientist who switches from Coke to Pepsi or tries to, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And I, you know, okay, so they can't solicit somebody from Coke. And by the way, I'm not taking out a big bile and 
for these companies necessarily. I'm just, it's the easy one that comes to mind because I know, you know, the Coke formula, right, is such a, right. a, a closely guarded secret and it's been the subject of such intense litigation at times. But, you know, you think of that person, that scientist who whatever has made Pepsi, cherry, I don't know, whatever they make for, for one of them. It's not like they don't know what they, you don't forget that information when you leave, right? I mean, maybe you don't have the, the key out in front of you and maybe you lose your company laptop and, and whatever else. But, and again, I'm not saying I support non-competes. I am just speculating. You wonder if there are times where it might make sense to, to keep some ability to keep protections in place. So I agree with that. And I think that's actually a good point that you raised too, because I'm not sure how this law would implicate, for example, let's say a trade secrets law. Right. Because under the Trade Secrets Act at the state level, there is this doctrine called inevitable disclosure. And so one of the key cases, at least in our area, is the PepsiCo case, where someone did steal the playbook on how to, what PepsiCo was going to do and went to a competitor. And the court did enforce essentially a six months non-compete. Because even though the, the individual or the employee did not have a non-compete clause based on what he inevitably would know and disclose to a direct competitor, that was going to be a problem. So I think if the FTC, like assuming hypothetically, we kind of agree that maybe in some segments of workers at the top or the higher levels, you should have some of these clauses. I do think um, it makes sense to have a federal law. And a part of the reason I say that is because... Well, two reasons. One is we're getting into a situation now where every state is doing it differently, and it's always been the case, but now it's getting much more nuanced. Illinois is doing it differently than Colorado, than Massachusetts, than Washington State, et cetera. And so I think for some companies who have multi-jurisdictional locations, it's difficult. And then the secondary component of that then is we're just much more hybrid. Like you can definitely have an individual who works for an Indiana company living in Illinois and working hybrid from Illinois. And so then it makes it very difficult to draft a non-compete agreement that meets the law when you have people kind of all over the country. Well, think of the think of the Chicago-based employee who goes to work for Microsoft, right? It's out of Seattle, and yeah, you know, maybe they the non-compete is set out of Washington, but they don't care where you work, right? And yep. there's a direct competitor who's you know, let's say IBM opened an office in Chicago and like poached them. You know what I mean? I'm yeah, exactly. And then that that executive may have equity, and that equity may be based upon Delaware law, and that that equity agreement may have a new non-compete within that. So now you have an Illinois employee who's working in Washington State has a non-compete agreement and separately has an equity agreement with a non-compete clause out of Delaware law. So that's where I think some of this stuff becomes administratively difficult. And the only person it really benefits is the lawyers, quite frankly, and these cases are almost always like that. But I, that's where I do think it makes sense to have some national law. I, this version of the FTC rule, I don't think will be it, partially because I envision there would be a lot of litigation over whether the FTC even has the authority under Section 5 to be able to do this. And even if they did, though, I just see a lot of political pushback on this one. Well, so two parts of that. The first is just, again, speculating. If they don't, if there isn't some way to normalize this at the federal level, just given how interconnected the economy is, I could see, you could see a world, right, where like you get this FTC rule in place. There is no, you know, otherwise unifying principle. It's disputed what's enforceable, what's not. You wonder if you end up in this weird new area of law of a new area of preemption that gets litigated out. Like, is this a state non-compete issue or does the federal government have the authority to enforce a non-compete in a certain situation like that? Yeah, I think I agree with you on that. And even in terms of 
you know, the interplay between this law and let's say a trade secrets act law or the inevitable disclosure. But even this law has some carve outs or some language about the interaction with other laws. And so I think the way I read it is if a state law is better for the employees somehow, that law would apply. Otherwise, this would trump. So, yeah, there is going to be some preemption issues, too. So the two things I want to flag here, which are related, which I'm a little surprised by in, in terms of how this was drafted, given how broad it is, is one, even in states where non-competes are banned, they still exist. So for example, in California, the Economic Policy Institute had conducted a study and they had found, according to their study at least, 45% of businesses were still using them. They didn't mean they enforce them, but they still use them. And that can still have an impact on the marketplace and employee mobility. And so what's surprising to me about this law is I didn't really see any teeth within the rule that's being proposed by the FTC. Now, maybe I missed it and it exists, but that's one place where I think some states have done a better job. Like Illinois' law, the Freedom to Work Act, has an attorney's fees provision for um, employees who win their non-compete cases and also has an enforcement mechanism by the attorney general's office. So I was a little surprised that this wouldn't have some sort of enforcement mechanism like that. What you mentioned Section 5 and to put you on the spot a bit. Yeah. What authority does the FTC have to regulate something like non-competes? Where does their authority emanate from? This is not a government agency you and I have spent a ton of time talking about. Right. So the short version, the way I understand it, is they are supposed to have authority under the FTC to ensure fair competition. And so their position is going to be, and this stems from our conversation about a year and a half ago about what Biden had done, is under Section 5, they believe they can then promulgate a rule to ban non-competes primarily because it is hindering competition. And there is some research that would support that position for sure. There's also research that indicates that when employees are knowledgeable about their non-competes, they negotiate them and that leads to higher wages. The problem is a lot of times they don't know, or a lot of times it does create a chilling effect on their post-employment activities. But yeah, their authority in theory is supposed to come from that language it's unclear of the if the FTC Act in Section Five really does give them the authority to prompt to to ban non-competes across all fifty states, and I think that would be the lit, the litigation we'd end up seeing. I don't know. I'm cynical, but given how the Roberts Court has sort of ruled that the Chamber of Commerce really is vociferously against whatever comes out, I just don't think it's going to survive. Yeah, and intact through all challenges. I think that's probably crazy, true. But but it's a weird thing though about the space. I, again, though, is it is a little bit more libertarian. It doesn't fall as specifically down party lines because it is a restraint on trade. So if you're very pro-competition, there is a lot of arguments as to why non-competes are then bad for business and the economy based on those factors. Now you've highlighted, I think the other flip side of it is non-competes can be helpful for businesses to maintain sensitive information or maybe for startups to compete. The question is, where is that line? I think everyone kind of right now is agreeing that line is definitely nowhere near a minimum wage employee. Yeah. And I, you know, it is interesting because you have, I, I'm in no way saying that there's not horrendous polarization or that there are not certain anti-labor bents through large segments of the government. You have, you have at minor intervals occasionally see something that breaks the pattern, right? Like you get this, and we did a show on it, the mandatory arbitration law that was a bipartisan law out of the, the Senate. I mean, it's it's now in law, but it, it, I think it started in the Senate. And that was like Lindsey Graham was big on that, who's 
not exactly considered a worker-friendly senator. It, it, it does seem like there is a little bit of motivation to start to free up folks to talk a little bit more or get a little bit better access to the courts where there is some attention on it like this. You know, the Jimmy John's case, right, was the one that spurred the yeah. work back in Illinois. So, like, you get publicity on that and somebody shines a light on what's a, you know, ridiculous outcome. Every now and again, we get something on in the workers area that that makes sense. I agree with that. And I think like stuff like this, I think, leads to more research and more studies and more conversation. So I think that generally is good. And, you know, from a business standpoint, if if you're a business and you hire someone who has a non-compete clause, that's really disruptive to you as well. Because if that employee, if that employee starts on day one and on day two, they're getting sued, well, they can't really, they're not fully committed to doing their job. And you also may get sued. And that does happen sometimes. And so it's not good for the new employer. So they have an incentive not to to have some reasonable restrictions on these things as well. So that's where I think there's a lot of overlap of these things can be pro-business in a weird way, which can also then inevitably end up helping workers. I wonder, what about something like a, a mandated garden leave where somebody is not, they're not fired and they're not, they're getting paid, but they're basically just sitting on ice for a period of time. And that's really common in the finance industry, yeah, because it, because it's a good way for an employer to make sure their information is being protected for the short period of time, and obviously they can put their money where their mouth is. Um, now, I will say that a lot of folks, I think, in those situations still are upset because even though they're making a lot of money, they're not making as much as they otherwise could be. Normally, it's just going to be either their base or a fraction of their base, and they're not eligible for kind of their bonus compensation, but it's still a good amount of money to sit out. And I think logically that makes a little bit more sense is to do it more as a garden leave because then the person is still employed and the company gets to protect their sensitive information. So it's a much better, I think, compromise than just forcing someone to sit out of the marketplace for six months to two years. Yeah. And I mean, you know, going back to something you said a little bit ago too about, you know, this may take aim at, or there may be impacts on non-solicits confidentiality agreements, garden leave now, and then also situations where just the the confluence of those things, right? Like you have an ironclad non-disclosure, right? You can't talk to anybody in a non-solicit. And then even if it's not a strict non-compete, you could just see enough of these things worming their way through the cracks where it has the same effect. You can ban it on, on their face, but there are ways around it. There's definitely ways around it, and it also assumes people are knowledgeable. One thing that's interesting about the rule that they proposed is there is like a notice requirement, and obviously it's hitting the news waves. But I personally was surprised when I saw some of the data out of California. Now, maybe there's noise in it, et cetera, but that's just the number of non-competes that still existed in the state in which they're banned was somewhat surprising. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that speaks to the concept of non-competes themselves, right, which is it, unless you really – unless you can really survive the court cost and sort of rigmarole without damaging whatever you're trying to start or wherever you're trying to go, it doesn't really always matter if you win in the long run. Like, no, that's forcible. As long as people can keep, you know, throwing up those roadblocks, it, you end up with a pyrrhic victory. Yeah, that's a great point. So I was watching some CNBC segment on this and someone brought that point up of like, aren't, you know, why do we even need the law? I thought most of the time courts strike these things down. And maybe that's true, but the question is how much pain do they cause to get there? And so the way these things typically work is if an employee starts a job on a Monday, they may be sued on a Wednesday. It's going to be an expedited process because you can't unring the bell once it starts. 
So if they're getting sued on a Wednesday, there might be a court hearing that Friday where the former employer is asking the judge, hey, this employee should no longer be allowed to work. There should be a temporary injunction and let's do a full trial within three to six months. And so now you got to do discovery, depositions, motion practice, got to get ready for essentially a trial. It's all going to be expedited. And then after that, one side may appeal. So the whole process takes a year, but it's super expensive and painful and distracting. And so it's not good for that new employee. It's not good for that new employer. And so maybe the employee wins at the end of the day or at the end of that year, but I'm not really sure they're going to constitute that as winning at that point. So I think think it's safe to say whatever comes of it, you hope there is some unanimity created, I think, or at least some more some more consistent standard that makes clear when it's enforceable, when they're not, what what really truly constitutes a non-compete, what functionally constitutes a non-compete by another name, um, and what are penalties, you know, on the employer side for abusing it. I think those would all be good outcomes, even if you don't end up with something quite so broad. I agree with all of that. I do think we're going to need some congressional law soon or something because it is getting to a point where it's you know, you, every couple of months, a new state's coming out with a new non-compete law. And some states are changing what they previously have done. And so it's, I think, hard for companies to keep up with that. So short of an across-the-board ban, which I, you know, I'm not an agency expert, but I, I'm assuming that would get struck down, but maybe I'm wrong. But you're probably right about the Roberts Court. Um, short of that, the lack of uniformity just makes it very difficult, I think, for employers who operate in multiple states or have employees working from multiple states to really be able to navigate this, even if they want to abide by the law. So, I mean, I think if nothing else, it gave you and I something to talk about that's employment law related and even timely. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it is it's super interesting. I know a bunch of text messages. It was all over LinkedIn. I saw it, you know, just randomly on my Twitter feed. So it's definitely an interesting time. And I think it's aggressive to say the least i'm curious to see how this all plays out for sure at a purely at a purely partisan and you know we are employment lawyer basis i like to see people take bold initiatives i understand that the outcome may end up being something short of that but i think you might as well you might as well shoot high and i think that was probably the plan here is this is as high as they could have shot without any enforcement mechanism unless i missed it so I'm sure this is part of the negotiation process. All right. Well, I think I think that about does it on this summit. Who would you like to shout out this week? I love that you put me first in the spot here. I'm going to shout out. Oh, sorry. What were you going to say? I'm just being a troll. Go on. <laughs> so I'm going to shout out the Best Man series. So I watched Best Man Holiday over Thanksgiving, which incredible movie. And I watched Best Man. So Best Man came out somewhere in the 90s. Best Man Holiday came out in like 2013 or so. And then they have like this limited TV series now on Peacock, I believe, like the Best Man Chronicles. All of it's great. And I think it's really cool to see the story arc that starts in the 90s where people are like kind of post-college. They continue when they're, you know, young professionals. And then the TV show kind of, you know, is their lives in their late 40s, early 50s. So it's very relatable as someone who's kind of gone through some of that so far. So I would, I'm going to shout that out. I thought it was great. And it was a good way for me to do something while I was waiting in line at the airport so my head did not explode. How about you? Well, Glass Onion was really cool. I did watch that, but no, I'm I'm going to I'm going to shut out my wife. She is uh days away from giving birth to our second and being a mom and a teacher who's been managing our two and 
change-year-old as she gets more precocious and opinionated and mobile is is a lot, and I'm very grateful for it, and she's very impressive. So, also congratulations on your second. Thank you. Let's see how I let's see how we get through it before you congratulate me. Uh... <laughs> I'm sure you'll be fine. Maybe a little the bit more coffee. Like keeping the kid alive and yeah, how a functional lawyer. It'll work out. Just you just need more coffee. Yeah, yeah, that's that's it. I need to be more amped up. <laughs> on, on that note, thank you to everybody at home for tolerating us and listening. Amit, thank you for thank you for talking us through that cool and nuanced issue. Please subscribe and share if you have not already. And happy new year to everybody. Happy New Year, everyone. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.